Hi, I'm Helen Avery. And I'm Ryan Jude. And you're listening to Green is the New Finance from the Green Finance Institute. And today we'll be joined by the Minister of State for Business, Energy and Clean Growth, Kwasi Kwarteng. This is a real opportunity for London, the City of London. And we felt that, you know, there is a transition to green finance. This was an opportunity, I think, for uh, London really to establish itself as a centre of green finance. And I think uh, in order to do that, one had to accelerate a lot of the, the legislation and increase the ambition. Welcome, everyone, to another co-hosted episode of the podcast. And welcome, Helen. How are you doing this morning? Looking forward to winding down for the holidays? Yes, not long now. Feels like it's been a very busy few weeks, cramming it all in for the end of the year. Um, same for you, I imagine. Congratulations, by the way, on the Zero Carbon Heating Task Force report. <laughs> Thank you very much. Really glad to get that out. It's been a great effort over the last few months from the team and all of the members. Um, for those who don't know what we're referring to, this is the Green Finance Institute's latest report on ways to finance the decarbonisation of the UK's built environment from our Coalition for the Energy Efficiency of Buildings. And you can find out much more on our website. Um, looking forward to working more on it next year. But before then, we need to discuss what's been happening this year in the UK and specifically with green finance. And there's been a lot announced in these last few weeks. Reviewing all the various documents has certainly kept us all busy. Yes, lots of announcements indeed from the UK government. Greens are in bonds, mandating the recommendations of the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, National Investment Bank, and uh, of course the release of the National Infrastructure Strategy and the 10-Point Plan. And of course, for us, it was great to see that the point 10 of the 10-Point Plan was purely focused on the UK's green finance capabilities. So lots to come in the future there. Indeed. And excited to have Minister Kwasi Kwarteng join us today to talk about it all. A um, bit of background on the minister. Minister Kwarteng is the Minister of State for Business, Energy and Clean Growth at the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Prior to working in politics, he had a career in the finance sector. And also since 2010, he has been the Conservative MP for Spellthorn. His portfolio includes green finance, energy efficiency and heat and low carbon generation, among many other things too. So let's get the minister on to hear a little bit more. Well, a very, very warm welcome to you, Minister Kwarteng. How are you today? Thanks for joining us. Very well, thank you. Really pleased to be uh, on this call. So, Minister, we thought we'd start by talking about a bit of your background before we get into some of the announcements that have come out from the UK government recently. You, of course, previously worked in the financial services sector in the City of London, before your election to Parliament in 2010. But back then, economic stimulus packages were not as green, and ESG and green finance were still fairly niche terms. So how have you witnessed things change in the finance world in the decades since you worked in the city? So my first job was at Chase Manhattan Bank, which shows how long ago that was. And uh, that was in 2000, when I was on the graduate training programme. And uh, shortly after I started, I went uh, Ch Chase Manhattan merged, or rather acquired, J.P. Morgan and became J.P. Morgan Chase. And I was working in syndicated loans, so I, I had a very good overview um, in a junior capacity of the syndicated loan market, which is essentially corporates, sometimes sovereign uh, borrowers, coming in and getting loans, and they're syndicated across a whole number of banks uh, in the city, and they're, they're quite large deals in those days. You know, you were looking at something like, you know, sometimes a billion sterling, 
a billion euros, up to 10 billion in, in different tranches. And I can tell you that in 2000, 2001, uh, nobody was talking about green finance. I mean, this was something that wasn't uh, remotely part of the agenda. And in the last 20 years, uh, we've seen a huge change um, in uh, the city's uh, understanding of climate change, in the city's understanding of you know, carbon accounting, for want of a better phrase. And we're moving to a position where you know, these TS TCFDs, I think, will be mandatory. You know, people will be forced uh, in many instances to you know, reveal the carbon impact of their investments and also uh, companies. So I can't tell you how much things have changed in the last 20 years. And you're quite right that when we looked at uh, the financial crisis in 2008, you know, clearly everyone wanted to recover very quickly from that. But again, uh, in those days, the whole concept of a green recovery uh, just wasn't part of the uh, debate. It wasn't part of the equation. Uh, whereas now, with COVID-19 and the ravages of the pandemic, uh, nearly every government, every minister I speak to from around the world is talking about a green recovery, saying we need to be more sustainable, we need to be more conscious of you know, carbon emissions. Uh, and it's, it's a completely different environment, even to the case, what was the case 12 years ago. On this um, green recovery that you speak of, you know, there's a lot of discussion around systemic change. It's been mm. a recurring theme in our, in our previous episodes and there's been references to the likes of uh, Bretton Woods. Yeah. Um, do you sort of share the opinion that we need systemic change in our financial and economic system? Is the green recovery a, a chance for that? Is, is you, as you mentioned, sort of globally, everyone's talking about it. Mm. Look, I think it is a chance for it. And I think that I mean, you mentioned Bretton Woods, and one of the interesting things about Bretton Woods was that it, there was a huge, for the time, uh, cross-country uh, international buy-in uh, to Bretton Woods. I mean, you had you know dozens of countries essentially signing up to this new financial order. And actually, the order was uh, quite successful from 1944 to the early 70s, really. I think today you're seeing exactly the same kind of international cooperation an interest in cooperating about things like TCFDs, uh, the net zero challenge. I mean, I was very struck by the fact that China, uh, only a couple of months ago, uh, committed itself to net zero by 2060. I mean, that's a huge deal. When I first took over the job in 2019, people were saying, oh, well, there's no point us doing anything. The Chinese, you know, have got their own agenda. Well, I can say now that they have publicly committed to the same agenda as we are, albeit a slightly later date. But I think that's a, that's a huge, uh, huge deal. And that shows the international nature of the approach, uh, because not only did China commit to net zero, but uh, very quickly after that, Japan committed to net zero by 2050, as we have done. And uh, also the government of South Korea made a similar announcement. So there's real international momentum uh, behind you know, coming up with uh, solutions uh, to climate change, reducing carbon emissions. And it may well be that, you know, in the not too distant future, maybe just a couple of years, uh, we can have an international agreement on, on finance um, in the way that Bretton Woods was a, an international agreement on, uh, on, you know, monetary policy. Yeah, we agree that international cooperation and coordination is so important. And it's been great to see all these announcements, of course, ahead of COP26 in the UK next year. Absolutely. Um, so talking of COP26 and, and the UK, onto some of the government's recent green finance announcements then. First up, let's start with the big announcement that the UK is set to launch its first green sovereign bond or green guilt in 2021. And not just that, it hopes to build out a green yield curve. 
This has obviously been something that we have publicly spoken about in the past, but for those not as familiar with the concept, could you explain why sovereign green bonds are so important and what the government hopes to achieve with this issuance? So I think that um, sovereign green bonds are were vital for us to do in the year of COP26. Other countries, the French, uh, the Germans uh, this year, uh, entered this market for the first time, and it was clearly the way to do it. And the way they work is that uh, the money is essentially uh, allocated or earmarked for green purposes. So you're raising money uh, as you would do as a sovereign in the uh, debt market, the international debt market. But the the uh, purposes of the money raised, you know, what, what you can spend the money on is, is quite restricted uh, in terms of green initiatives. And I think it was essential that we did this, not only to show leadership, because frankly, you know, the fact that we hadn't done one was being noticed. Uh, the French did with theirs, I think, in 2017. The Germans came out with theirs in 2019. Um, I think that was really important for leadership. But also, I think it gives the government um, more ammunition in terms of driving the green agenda. And the striking thing about the green bonds is that they trade at par or lower underneath, uh, inside uh, the normal equivalent uh, gilt or bunt or, or whatever the, the instrument is. So there's more demand for these green uh securities, these green sovereign bonds, than there is for equivalent gilts or bunts or government paper. And and that makes it very attractive for a treasury, I mean, uh, uh, to, to be able to issue money uh, more cheaply even than, than the usual the usual gilt. Uh, so I think that's a huge opportunity. I think it'll give us more firepower in terms of, uh, you know, expend, spending on climate change policies. It's really attractive. Well, my next question was going to be around the fact that this has been in the discussion for several years now. And as you said, it's been noticed that we hadn't issued one. I was going to ask why now, but as you just said, leadership, COP26, and we agree with that completely. I think COP26 really focused people's minds on it. I mean, ever since I got the job uh, of energy minister in 2019, I was very focused on the green sovereign bond. I thought it was really important that we got one out there. And I'm very pleased that you know colleagues in the Treasury have also adopted that. And you're quite right. I mean, I, sh- I forgot to mention, but the, the fact that we're having different tranches. I mean, one of the, I said I worked in syndicated loans. I used to issue bonds as well. So I'm very interested in the fact that we had, we're going to actually have a yield curve in one go as the Germans did. So you have um, tranches of different maturities, you know, maybe a five year, a 10 year, a 15 year. I don't know how it will be structured, but you have a short term uh, bond, a medium term and a longer term. And of course, uh, once you issue them, that immediately sets a yield curve because you can look at the, the interest, um, you know, and, and where they're trading. So, I mean, as people in the bond market will know, you, every corporate bond is priced over an equivalent maturity uh, government security. I mean, that's how you price uh, corporate bonds. And I think that's why it was very important to establish some kind of yield curve on the, on the green sovereign side. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what needs to be done between now and the issuance in 2021? What are the next steps going to be on the government side? So I think that, you know, I mean, this is typical uh, capital market stuff. I, I actually think there are lots and lots of banks um, in the City of London that will be um, falling over themselves to, <laughs> to issue. Uh, you know, I mean, what what would that, as a bond, as a, someone who worked in the bond market, it would be a great thing uh, to be part of the first UK green sovereign bond. And I think there'll be lots of interest, not only from um, buyers of the securities, uh, investors, but also from from the the houses, the, the finance houses who are going to be issuing the paper, the book runners, as we used to call them. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they will. 
uh, and look forward to seeing who you choose <laughs> in that process. Well, that's that is certainly not part of my brief. Um, <laughs> that will be decided by, by other people. But um, yeah, I think there'll be there'll be lots of interest. So moving on to greening finance, um, obviously the, the UK government announced that um, reporting in line with TCFD requirements is now going to become mandatory by 2025 yeah. and 2023 for publicly listed UK companies with a premium listing. Um, going beyond the comply or explain approach recommended by TCFD, what was behind the decision to go even further than the TCFD recommendations? I think we, we felt that um, this is a real opportunity for London, the City of London, because historically the City of London has been an international centre for finance, uh, you know, centuries uh, of tradition and experience. And we felt that, you know, there is a transition to green finance uh, globally. I mean, you can talk to financiers, you talk to investors. There's clearly a move towards uh, green securities. I mean, one little fact that I found fascinating was that only a few months ago, Orsted, which is a Danish offshore wind uh, supplier, the market capitalization of Orsted surpassed that of BP uh, for the oh, first wow. time uh, a few months ago. I haven't seen where they're trading recently, but that was significant. Uh, so investors are clearly very, very keen uh, to, to, to funnel money towards greener investments. And we felt that this was an opportunity, I think, for uh, London really to, to, to establish itself as a centre of green finance. And I think uh, in order to do that, uh, one had to accelerate a lot of the, the legislation um, and, 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 and increase the ambition on TCFDs and on green finance generally. Hmm. What do you think the government hopes to achieve here? I just wondered on the um, on the risk side, you know, everyone's talking about climate risk. Obviously, TCFD is, is about exposing some sure. of the climate risk. Um, just wondered what your, your thoughts are on that risk and how it's growing. I think the risk is there. But I think, you know, the, one of the biggest challenges is, is being able to quantify that and also being able to tell investors, uh, you know, what those risks are. I mean, at the end of the day, the financial market doesn't work if there aren't investors, you know, with capital uh, who are sitting there ready to invest assets. And of course, if you want to attract investors, you've got you need transparency, you need metrics, you need accounts. And as I've said, investors are increasingly interested in uh, green uh, products and and the greenness of uh, the corporates that they're investing in. And in order to facilitate that flow of investment, you need you know really transparent, clear metrics, and that's one of the reasons why we're pushing these measures. That's fantastic. And another fantastic thing we're, we're, we're thrilled to see announced in, in just the last couple of weeks was the National Infrastructure Bank. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know that we've been huge advocates here at Absolutely. the Institute. <laughs> um, so firstly, you know, we know why we're advocates, but we'd love to hear from you. Like, why is why is this bank so important for helping the UK achieve its net so I think that the, I mean, if you look historically, just I'm not talking about way back in the past, but, you know, the things, the institutions we had, we had the Green Investment Bank um, until about 2017. It was instituted, I think, in 2015. Uh, and that was sold to Macquarie. But we also were members of the EIB, the European Investment Bank. And I think it was felt that we needed an institution that could um, invest or encourage investment in uh, industry, and also, but infrastructure particularly, but also in a green way. So one of the things that I was very excited about the National um, Infrastructure uh, Bank is that it will have a green mandate. It will have in its core mission, you know, the net zero uh, 
challenge, the net zero um, uh, principle, if you like. And I think that does two things. I think it does focus investment on green um, you know, decarbonization, but also it, it, it uh, creates, if you like, a bank, a national bank that is driving infrastructure investment, which we, we haven't really had before. Um, we were part of the EIB, as I said, but that was part of the European uh, family of institutions, family of the European institutions. But I think the National Infrastructure Bank is a, a new thing for, the, for, for our country, and it's exciting. So you've mentioned a couple of key institutions there, the Green Investment Bank, the, the EIB, and I guess similar to the Green Sovereign Bond, since the Green Investment Bank um, was sold in 2017, there's been a lot of discussion around a new national investment bank focused on infrastructure, yeah. focused on net zero. Um, I guess the question is, why is now the perfect time? Is it because, you know, we're losing the EIB's funding and also because of the green recovery? Is it a perfect storm of situations? Yeah, I think it comes together. I mean, I think that, you know, the the it's no secret that the sale of the Green um, Investment Bank uh, was uh, somewhat controversial. There were different voices, even within government, uh, saying, you know, maybe we should keep it, maybe we shouldn't uh, sell it, maybe we should sell it, that sort of thing. And when it was sold, I think uh, very rapidly, it became apparent that it did have a function, that uh, it would be quite a good idea to recreate. So that was part of the discussion. And then obviously leaving the, the EU, we were leaving the EIB. And then, of course, we've got the COVID-19 and the green recovery, the COVID-19 economic uh, challenge crisis, if you like, and the green recovery. So all these things came together. And I think, you know, people, colleagues in Treasury very wisely took the decision that it would be a good idea uh, to have uh, a national infrastructure bank that, that kind of does a lot of what the Green Investment Bank did, does a lot of what the EIB did, and could power a green recovery um, to get us past uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. So obviously one of the roles of the National Infrastructure Bank is to crowd in private capital. What are your thoughts on the necessity of government in um, providing the levers that allow or encourage private capital to mobilise, particularly when it comes to climate solutions? I think that's a really good point, Alan. It's a point I always stress. Um, this isn't going to work without a large degree of private investment, private capital being deployed uh, into, into key technology. And people often say, well, the government's not spending enough. But that's not the point. The point isn't the government being able to spend $150 billion or whatever it is. Uh, to do green infrastructure. The, the point is for government, the challenge for government is to set up the right framework with, through which private capital can be deployed and private uh, investors uh, can, 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 can invest. And we've done that very successfully in things like the offshore wind market. The offshore wind market, which is now, we have 35% of global capacity in the UK. Now that 35% wasn't just government money, government spending taxpayers' money to build wind farms. It, it was government cleverly coming up with a CFD process, with an auction process, competitive process, and attracting the, the deployment of private capital. Because if you actually look at the sums that have been invested in the offshore wind market, the vast majority of that is, is, is private investors, is, is enterprise. Uh, and what government has done is facilitated that. So it's not simply a question of the government spending you know, X amounts or huge amounts of uh, taxpayers' money. We've got to think cleverly about how we can attract private investors to do that. So I'm very glad that you've led with the offshore wind market there and the ways that the government crowded in the capital because it tees me up perfectly for the next question. So obviously it's early days. The bank was only announced a couple of weeks ago. But at the Green Finance Institute, we recommended in a paper last week four sectors that the National Infrastructure Bank could focus on. 
These were the built environment and district heating, clean energy and hydrogen, nature-based solutions, and transport. Now, we're not saying it's an exhaustive list, but those are definitely areas that we feel like should be prioritized. So we'd love to speak about the first two in particular. Starting on clean energy, as you've just mentioned, the stimulus measures after 2009 are what allowed the offshore wind and solar market to grow to the extent that they are now. And as as you've rightly said, the UK still has the largest offshore wind market in the world. But we feel like a key part of that was not just the measures, but also, of course, the Green Investment Bank and the way that it leveraged in private capital. So similarly to that, hydrogen produced using offshore wind capacity could be a key focus of investment for the National Infrastructure Bank. Would love to hear your thoughts on this. Clearly, I think um, any national uh, infrastructure bank is going to have a big role in driving the hydrogen economy. I mean, you know, it's very early days. And that's exactly the, the kind of uh, area that we want to attract private capital into. And I think that, you know, we're, we're coming up with a hydrogen strategy first quarter of next year. It'll emphasize both renewable hydrogen, green hydrogen, as it's called, and blue hydrogen, which is produced through methane reformation. Um, and we hope to be able to have business models that will attract uh, private capital and, and private investment. And the National Infrastructure Bank, just as the Green Investment Bank did six years ago, will sit behind that and will we'll be a, a forum where people can, can invest in these things. And you've got to remember that when um, the offshore wind market started, it was much harder to get um, you know, private banks or, or the corporate corp banks to, to give loans to this. It was, and it was really the Green Investment Bank that stepped into that breach. Uh, and it was only once the, the, the technology had been scaled up that the initial investments had been made that your high street banks, your normal um, corporate banks, felt much more comfortable in, in, in lending credit to be invested in that way. And I suspect the same thing will happen uh, with newer technologies like CCUS and hydrogen. And just as in uh, the role that the Green Investment Bank played, I think the National Infrastructure Bank may well play a role in providing that early capital, perhaps a slightly riskier capital, um, in order to kind of uh, make the market friendlier for for normal credit providers. And another sector of focus that you know that Ryan mentioned could be the built environment. Um, as a sector that's responsible for 15% of the yeah. UK's greenhouse gas emissions. Can we expect the built environment to be central to the investment plans? What are your thoughts? I think, I think it will be. I mean, we already have a, a, a bank which is exclusively devoted to decarbonising public sector buildings. And I think there's a scope for the uh, investment bank, the, the infrastructure bank, uh, to um, lend money uh, for decarbonising decarbonization projects uh, in people's houses, potentially, you know, insulation. People have been talking about green mortgages for a long time. I don't, I'm not sure where the infrastructure bank will set, sit with that, but there's a lot of opportunity here in terms of uh, credit, providing credit uh, for the purposes of decarbonization, not only in public sector buildings, but also, you know, for, for to us as, as, as private citizens, you know, people going about our business who want to increase, you know, energy efficiency of our houses and think about buying heat pumps and, 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 and that kind of technology. Finally, Minister, we would love to talk to you about jobs. Um, the Green yeah. Jobs Task Force has just launched, which yeah. you, of course, will be chairing. The, you know, the creation of jobs is, is going to be vital as we emerge from the pandemic and, and as we transition to a green economy. Um, and the Green Jobs Task Force is set up specifically to support the government's target to create 
2 million skilled jobs to build back greener and achieve net zero by 2050. Can you tell us how it's going to help achieve this? So the, the, the critical thing, why the task force came together is, is, about, is a story about British government. We've got lots and lots of departments. And typically, the departments sort of act in, in silos. And Julian Keegan, who's the Minister for Skills in the Department for Education, and I in Bayes, thought it would be a good idea for us to come together, Bayes and the DfE, to talk about skills uh, and to talk about the workforce and to talk about um, training, um, particularly with regard to net zero. So we, we, we thought, why don't we come up with this forum where the DfE and Bayes can come together and think about the kinds of skills that we need, the kind of training that we need. Uh, to really upskill our workforce for, ahead of net zero. And that's that was the initiative. It was a joint uh, departmental approach to a significant problem. And I think some of the things that we're looking at in the Green uh, Jobs Task Force is what skills do we need? You know, how many people do we need? You know, how many plumbers do we need to upskill so that they can install heat pumps or or, or they can, how many installers of, uh, uh, you know, decarbonizing insulation, um, energy efficiency, you know, there are a whole range of skills in terms of, you know, carpentry, plumbing, um, ele electrical skills uh, that, that are going to drive, uh, you know, the push to net zero. And the Green Task Force is just a way of getting people together. There are all kinds of people. There are, you know, business people. There are government people. There are trade unions. There are one or two academics from a whole range of different walks of life, different sectors coming together to, to really think uh, in a strategic way about the kinds of skills, the kind of workforce that we will build and, uh, and create in the next in the years. And the other sector, of course, that's going to need upskilling is is the finance sector. Uh, there was the launch of the Green Finance Education Charter this year, of course. And what are your thoughts about upskilling finance to green finance? Absolutely. So, I mean, if you look at, um, you know, the development of, of corporate accounting, um, you know, in the 19th century, you know, they, they, they had to have a balance sheet, they had to have an income statement. And of course, you needed people to be able to analyze a balance sheet and an income statement. There's no point having those things if you don't have skilled people who can analyze those. I think the same thing will happen in green finance. I think with TCFDs, you'll get and you already are getting people who are very, very good at looking at the carbon impact of, of uh, different corporates. And I'm sure those skills will be will be in demand, even in greater demand, you know, in the years ahead. Absolutely. And obviously building those skills and jobs will be crucial um, as we head towards a, a net zero economy. Well, Minister, thank you for taking the time out to to join us this morning. It's been great to, to get the insights regarding these policy decisions and we will be sure to keep an eye out for future developments. Thank you. Yes, thank you again, Minister, and happy holidays. So it looks like it's going to be a really busy 2021 ahead of COP26, listening to the minister there. Ryan, is there anything you're particularly excited about from the government's plans over the year ahead? Well, Helen, as you know, I've been very keen on a government-backed national infrastructure bank for, well, years now, as, as we all have. So it's great to see that be announced. It's going to be key, as the minister said, in replacing the EIB as we go forward, as well as right now, given the fact that we're in this economic recession of spurring growth in new clean industries, creating jobs and helping us recover. Just looking forward to hearing more details on the capitalization and the sectors that it's going to invest in. Also looking forward to seeing the details to come out of further reports such as the Energy White Paper. So lots more for us to read in the start of next year. 
What about you? Um, well, I thought it was great to hear a little bit more about the Green Jobs Task Force. Um, you know, the Confederation of British Industry estimates nine in every 10 workers will need to rescale by 2030. So great to see some firm plans around moving towards that. Um, and we didn't talk about this. So I'm also excited to hear what this task force net zero is that the Prime Minister mentioned in the 10 point plan. So yeah, lots to look forward to in 2021. Well, as you mentioned, we'll have that to look forward to next year. But in 2020, we still have one more fantastic podcast. Yes, we do. Before the holidays next week, we have our final guest of the year, Richard Curtis, which promises to be a very inspiring and fun note to end on. Yeah, I really can't wait to sit down with Richard. We'll be talking to him about his Make My Money Matter campaign, which is all around how we can invest our pensions sustainably. I will also be talking about some of his past work on the UN Sustainability Development Goals and, of course, a couple of questions around Christmas films. Yes, I'm sure Love Actually is going to get a mention. So um, <laughs> to catch that in all our future episodes, don't forget to subscribe in all the usual places. And until then, thank you once again for joining us for this episode of Green is the New Finance. Green is the New Finance is brought to you by the Green Finance Institute with audio production by Fairly Media.